what I define as happiness now is a very deep-rooted feeling of well-being. The knowledge that I am okay, I will always be okay, I have always been okay, and in fact, it's impossible for me not to be okay. Hey there, friends. Welcome to Happiness Squad. This is the podcast dedicated to helping you unlock your full potential by mastering the art and science of happiness. We bring on the best leading experts on these topics to help you unlock your true potential and live with more joy, health, love, and meaning in your life. Your host is no other than the star combo of Ashish Katari and Anil Ramjiani, who are both on a mission to provide you with an unfair advantage to be the masters of your experience and leaders in your industry. Get ready to be moved, challenged, and enlightened on this podcast. It may change your life. Thanks for being here and joining the squad. Hey, Happiness Squad. It's great to have you with Ashish and I as we host guests who are industry leaders helping individuals and organizations unlock their inner happiness and flourishing. Get ready for an episode with our next guest, where an exchange of ideas, stories, and awareness will truly take you down your own path of awakening. Dr. Shri Kumar Rao is a speaker, former business school professor, and head of the Rao Institute based out of New York. He's an executive coach to senior business executives who he helps find deeper meaning and engagement in their work. Graduates of his workshops and leaders he has helped around the globe have transformed their lives so that they can experience abundant joy no matter what comes their way. He's a TED speaker, author, and creator of the pioneering course, Creativity and Personal Mastery. Professor Rao's recent book, Modern Wisdom, Ancient Roots, which condenses various life lessons, takes center place in our conversation, where we delve into the power of awareness, reflection, mental chatter, stress. You know what? This may very well open your mind and shift your thinking. Stay tuned for a rapid fire at the end, where you'll get to know Professor Rao at a deeper level. So hey, let's get started. Please join Ashish and I as we welcome Professor Rao to the Happiness Squad and Rewire together. Ashish, Professor Rao, it is a pleasure to be with both of you. Hope you both are doing well and excited for our chat. Professor Rao, we have a favorite question we'd love to ask all of our guests, and it's essentially, what is your definition of happiness and how would you say it's changed from your younger years until now? In my younger years, I knew I would be happy if, and I had a bunch of things, you know, if I became very successful, I became very well known, I had a lot of money, I reached positions of a hierarchical power, I had a beautiful trophy partner, and you know, it's a never ending list. <laughs> I now recognize that I had fallen into what I subsequently discovered and called the if then trap. And the if-then trap is basically, if this happens, then I will be happy. And there's a ton of such things, you know. I have to be married so I can have breed sex so I can be happy. Or if not married, at least be in a relationship. Or I have to make a great deal of money so I can travel to exotic places on vacation so I can be happy. All of that is part of the if-then model, which is actually a trap because the if-then Mortal is fundamentally flawed. People say, typically, you know, it didn't work for me. I must have put the wrong thing on the if side of the equation. I thought if I was in a relationship or married, I'd have great sex and be happy. I now recognize I married the wrong person. So I have to extricate myself from it with as little financial damage as possible and marry the right person, and then I will be happy. In other words, I put the wrong thing on the if side. That's wrong. What I have discovered is that it's not what you put on the if side of the equation that's wrong. The equation itself is faulty. It's broke. It flat out does not work. So to answer your question, what do I define as happiness now? What I define as happiness now is a very deep-rooted feeling of well-being. The knowledge that I am okay, I will always be okay. I have always been okay, and in fact, it's impossible for me not to be okay. 
we're all in the human predicament and when we're in the human predicament stuff will happen there will be serious illness and death there will be financial setbacks there will be career reversals there will be relationship problems all of that is part and parcel of being in the human condition we'll deal with each one of them as appropriate but we will deal with it from the space of i'm okay have always been okay and will always be okay and that is happiness can i read something to you please and as you picking up a book and bringing it professor rao it's so resonant with this and the work that we are trying to do and i always say you know if we can help people flip the script first of all if people learned the right script when they were growing up life would be good but since we don't teach it right let's flip the script happiness can be the means to pursue any end versus an end that we pursue through the means of all the ifs that you describe promotions relationships hard work suffering almost like i want to suffer enough so i can be happy later uh right why don't i suffer now i remember that actually story from uh, emma sepler professor sepler's work and she said somebody came to me and she said you know i can't take your course and she asked her why is it because it goes completely against everything that i have learned and that got me here and she said what did you learn she said that we had to work hard and really work harder and push myself and that's what was going to make me successful and that was going to make me happy and she said so what's the problem with it she said except it's when i asked my parents well how do i know if i'm working hard working hard enough and they said well you'll know it because you will be suffering so if you're not suffering you're not working hard enough so you won't be happy later <laughs> but that's what we are taught right we are taught that do all of this so you can be happy in the end but if we learn to flip the script you know the research is clear happier people are more successful more adaptable more resilient live longer have better relationships all of that but back to you you wanted to read us a passage yeah i do that before i do that i also wanted to share share with you how much i resonated with what anil shared with me because when i started my phd at columbia if there had been a course like mine i would have benefited immensely from yes it. but i know that if there had been a course like mine at columbia when i started my phd i'd have been too dumb to take it because at that time my world view was oh this is all woo woo far out stuff it's not relevant and only the people who can't hack the real course would take it and me i took that once multivariate statistics and i got honors so <laughs> that's where it was that you know corporate finance advanced multivariate statistics you know that's the real stuff and only the people who can handle the real stuff go for this boo boo you know useless stuff and there's been a sea change in my thinking as you can tell yes so anyway i wanted to share with you that when i ask people are you happy most people and i deal with very successful individuals most people say yeah yeah of course i'm happy but we define happiness set we set the bar too low we have a cavalier approach to what's happiness and when you say you're happy what you're really saying is there is nothing actively bothering me right now and there are <laughs> some things that i'm looking forward to in life like maybe watching a new netflix junk thriller or going to dinner with a friend or something like that and i'd like to to listen deeply to what i'm about to read out the prayer of the heart delighted me so much that i thought there could be no one happier than i in the whole world and could not imagine how there could be any greater or deeper contentment in the kingdom of heaven not only did i experience all this within my soul but everything around me appeared to be enchanting and inspired me with love for and gratitude to god people trees plants animals i felt kinship with them all and discovered how each bore the seal of the name of jesus christ at times i felt so lightweight as if i had no body and were not walking but rather joyously floating through the air at other times i entered so fully into myself that i saw clearly all my inner organs and this caused me to marvel at the wisdom that went to creating the human body Sometimes I knew such joy that I felt as if I'd been crowned a king. It was at such moments of consolation that I wished that God would grant me to die as soon as possible so that I could pour myself out in gratitude at his feet in the spiritual world. 
Now, this was written by in the Eastern Orthodox tradition by someone who was in that tradition. But there are similar accounts in virtually every wisdom tradition in the world. That is happiness. Are you radiantly alive? Does your blood sing at the thought of being who you are and doing what you do? Could you fall to your knees in involuntary gratitude of the tremendous good fortune that has been bestowed on you? I love that poem. Who is that by, Professor Rao? That is an extract from The Way of the Pilgrim. Nobody knows who the pilgrim was, but it's a spiritual classic, and there have been many translations. In India, we have a term for this. This is the joy that is called Ananda. Yes. Ananda has been mistranslated as joy, happiness, and so on, but it actually is that very deep feeling of well-being and okayness that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And your nature is that. You are Ananda. You know, it's always I ask, I have the same questions, the same conversations, right? And this distinction of, are you experiencing joy or are you joyful by nature? Have you made yourself that regardless of whatever's happening out there, I can meet it. I can choose happiness. I can choose joy. There is no translation of Ananda in English in the purest sense. So the closest translation is joy. But this notion of no matter what, you can't change whatever is happening out there, but we can meet it with anger, resentment, anxiety, fear, or I can meet it with acceptance and happiness to see what can I do from it? What can I learn from it? Absolutely correct, Ashish. You know, you mentioned, and I'm going to go to a different question than the question we actually had for you because I think we can go there. When you opened, you said, I have always been well, right? I have always been, there is nothing to fix. There is no wrong. I will be okay. I have been okay. Who is the I? Because a lot of people will be like, actually, I have not been okay. I was very poor. I was on food stamps. Or I was not okay. I lost a child. Or I was not okay. I had a divorce. I got fired. So help for our listeners. Talk about the I that you are mentioning when you say that. This is a profound philosophical question, so let me preface that by saying that one of the greatest influences on my life has been an Indian sage called Ramana Maharshi. And he's contemporary. He lived in the late 19th through the mid-20th centuries. There are people alive now who had met with him, and countless people have you know, listened to him, recorded their notes of uh, what happened with them, his teachings and so on. So very, very, very documented. Now, here's the point. When I say I, typically when we say I, we identify with a body-mind-intellect complex and a role that we're playing. I'm Ashish, I'm in Boulder, right, on this podcast, and I met Anil. That is a story you're telling yourself. That is not who you really are. Who you really are is pure awareness. And all of the suffering in your life is caused by this misidentification of who you are with a particular body-mind-intellect complex. And you do not have to believe me. You just have to look at your own experience and use your logic. Now, look, right now, Ashish, you're in a studio, perhaps in Boulder, you're talking to me via Zoom or whatever is the platform that you're using. And, you know, we're having a pleasant conversation. But then you go to bed at night and all of a sudden you're dreaming. And in your dream, you're Julius Caesar and you're fighting Pompey because you want to be dictator of Rome and he wants to be dictator of Rome and your legions are fighting these legions. And you happen to win, and in pursuing him, you land up in Egypt, and Cleopatra is having an issue with her brother. <laughs> so you like Cleopatra, so you side in with her, and she becomes queen, and he is banished, and you have an affair, and you have a son, and then you go back to Rome, and the Ides of March happen. And when Brutus sticks his knife in you, it really hurts. In fact, it hurts so much that you wake up. And when you wake up, you say, it was all a dream. Now, recognize what happened. You created everything. You created the Roman Empire. You created the legions. You created Pompey and Cleopatra and your son and all the rest of that. But having created all of that, you identified with a tiny part of what you created, the part called Julius Caesar. 
And when you recognize all of this, when you wake up and say it was all a dream, you're in a dream right now, Ashish. And when do you recognize this? When you wake up. And that is what all the sages have been telling us. You are not who you think you are. That is a fiction. Wake up. Your true nature, Aham Brahmasmi. That is who I am. And the whole purpose of life is to get to the point where this is your lived experience as opposed to an intellectual concept. But think about this right now. Let me make a proposition. Only that is real which always is. That's reasonable, right? Only that is real which always is. Then Ashish is not real. Anil is not real because it comes and goes. Sometimes there's Ashish and sometimes there's Julius Caesar and sometimes you go into a dark state. Yeah, our bodies have the nature of being born and dying. Yeah. But not that of the consciousness that resides. The consciousness is always there. When you wake up from deep sleep, you don't have to ask someone, was I there? You know yes. there. that knowledge that you are, I am, is the only thing that always is. And therefore, that is the only thing which exists. And you are that. That thou art. That is who you are. So when you recognize that that is who you are and that is where your locus of awareness is, then this is a wondrous dream that's playing out. And in this dream, you know, it's fantastic. Enjoy it. Sometimes you're really, really, really poor and sometimes you're rich and sometimes the world is in a mess and sometimes it's going there and it's all a drama. Enjoy the drama, but never lose sight of the fact that it is a drama. Do not identify with the character, identify with the actor. If you identify with the character, you're screwed. If you identify with the actor, you're gold. Your job is to stop identifying with the character or the role that you're playing and the horrible or great things that are happening to the character. Identify with the actor. And recognizing that is a first step. Actually achieving that is the work of a lifetime, maybe many lifetimes. Beautiful, beautiful. Do you know, I, I had a conversation today with an old friend of mine who actually I did podcasts with back during lockdown, and we were talking about consciousness, and she mentioned something, a colleague told her about what consciousness meant to him, and she disagreed. She's like, no, and it was along the lines, sorry, so she feels what's along the lines of what you just said, Professor Rao, which is being aware, right? Being your pure awareness. And what I kind of responded back is, you know, and I'm on a journey, right? We're all on a journey to kind of understand what that means to us, right? And I kind of said to her, I was like, well, you know, I think this is a step-by-step -step process. Some people first have to be open to the idea of it before they can then take that first step to even be or become enlightened or, or at least embrace their divine awareness. I want to segue to a talk that you gave that I listened to that frames up my next question, which is, I think one of the reasons why people aren't able to recognize that pure awareness is because of all that noise that's happening around us and also that mental chatter that happens inside us. But first talking about we're the most connected generation. We've got everything at our fingertips, yet we have the highest levels of stress, the highest levels of anxiety. And I know that you've done considerable research trying to understand the various sources of that stress. And I really love when you talked about it, You know, people sitting down, one out of eight, two out of eight. The epiphany came after when you mentioned, you know, actually the real source of stress is our relationship with the universe and the role we expect the universe to play. And so, Professor Rao, could you please share with our listeners who've not been privy to your talk, what relationship do you feel we think we have with the universe versus what we really have? I will do that. But before I do that, let me share something else. And this is certainly appeal to all the rational thinkers in yours. Because you were at London Business School, and you know London Business School is full of type A individuals who live in their head. <laughs> Raising my hand, absolutely. <laughs> it more by science. Well, we know that there is no such thing as space and time. There's only space-time. It's one integrated thing. And we know that there is no such thing as mass. Mass and energy are you know, interchangeable. Now, this is hard physics by some of the greatest minds the world has known, many Nobel Prize winners, so we accept it. 
But Varnik, we still live in a world where there is space with three dimensions and time, which is going on a relentless stream from past to future. Why don't we know that time can go backwards? Why don't we know that there is no space and time, but only space-time? Because of our clouded vision. We can accept this and we're comfortable with the knowledge that, you know, we're not there. What happens is the great sages, the seers, the Buddhas, the Jesus, the Ramana Maharshi, they lived in a world where they were space-time and the fabric of the universe. They experienced that as this is the locus of awareness. And that is what they told us, this is what you have to do. This is what is meant by enlightenment. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is Nirvana. And they're inviting you to join them there. So coming back to that, most of us believe that the universe, and I define the universe as everything that you define as not you. And most of us have that feeling, the universe exists out there and it is indifferent to me and couldn't care less. Here I am going around doing my thing. There's the universe going around doing its thing. Sometimes it seems to work in my favor. Sometimes it seems to work against me. But essentially, this is a random process. And I invite all my students to consider that the universe is aware of you, knows you exist, and is well disposed towards you. The universe is your friend. Yes. Evidently, is a question posed by Einstein. He said, the most important question you will ever ask yourself is, is the universe friendly? And as I just said, the majority of us believe the universe is neither friendly nor unfriendly. It's just indifferent, good care. Suppose the universe were friendly. Friends don't shaft friends, right? Yes. So if the universe was friendly, why the hell does it give you stuff you don't want? Like you want to travel and go on vacation, the universe gives you pandemics and lockdowns. Well, what if the universe was friendly and it gave you not what you wanted, but exactly what you needed for your learning and growth? It's like you're a small kid and you want a tub of ice cream and the universe through your parents gives you fruits and vegetables. And you don't want fruits and vegetables. You want a tub of ice cream. But the universe gives you fruits and vegetables. And it isn't until you have a greater level of maturity and understanding that you can say, thank God I got fruits and vegetables. What if the universe was like that? What if it gave you exactly what you needed, which might not be what you wanted. In fact, frequently is not what you wanted, but exactly what you needed for your learning and growth. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that regardless of whether or not the universe is friendly, if you believe the universe is friendly, your experience of life would be a whole lot better. And if you take the next step and say, what if the universe actually was friendly? Oh, there'd be a quantum leap in your experience of life. And it is possible for you to adopt the model of the universe is friendly. And how you do that is a big chunk of what my course is all about. There is so much to unpack there, Professor Rao, right? There's so much in there. And again, we come at this from the place of spirituality and science, and oftentimes all of our A, you know, people who are like driven A types, think about science on this side and spirituality on that side. But in all of my research, when I started going deep into this, you know, I was the same. You know, I went to IIT, went to Chicago Booth, talk about who, if not completely quantitative numbers, facts. Then I was in 17 years at McKinsey, right? It was Unless there is like four layers of proof I don't want to believe it, right? And this stuff, I mean, there is no proof here. So why am I going to believe it? That's what I thought till 42 when I started going deep. And that's what was amazing, that if you look at the biggest spiritual teachers and the leading scientists actually don't see science and spirituality as these two things. Science is just a way to look into and start to make sense of what the ancient sages and spiritual wisdom traditions have even been talking about, right? And I just bring it to life, friends, through what Professor Rao talked about in two or three scientific anecdotes. Because even as you hear him, there would be many who say, yeah, I don't know what he's talking about. So what if I told you, we have this image, we have this vision, right? First, very simple. If I said, what's happening? We're experiencing the world out there. We seem to be stationary and we move. But we know that the earth is revolving around the sun, right? We don't experience that. But very few, unless they have actually looked into it, and I only discovered this fact yesterday, so, you know, not a deep multi-year, right? I discovered this yesterday. Did you know that not only is actually 
Earth not revolving around the sun, but our entire solar system is actually moving through space at 200 kilometers per second. And we don't experience that. We experience fixed rigidity. So don't believe in what you experience, right? Our experiences are fundamentally limited. So that's point number one. Point number two, if you look at the Dalai Lama, and you know, I read one of his books, The Entire Universe in an Atom, and if you look at what quantum physicists have been saying, one of the core elements of quantum physics, right, when you look and start to break down the solidity of the world, this notion of we have our solid things that are made up of molecules, molecules are made up of atoms, you go down to atoms, you start to explore the electrons and all of the elements that build into it. As you go down, what you find is 99%, 99.9% of atoms, the solid things that make up everything, is empty space. At the heart of teaching from thousands of years, right, in Buddhism, in the Yoga Sutras and others, which is emptiness is form and form is emptiness. And so there is real science around, if you start to look down, you will find the facts. We are never taught, we are so busy trying to conquer the world out there, that we are not taught to actually explore the science of our inner worlds. And that's why we don't know. Big, big, big clap to you. You're absolutely right. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there was a book by Erwin Schrodinger, and he wrote, every great physicist is a mystic. Yes. And you cannot be a great physicist without being a mystic. I'll tell you what was my own mind-blowing moment. When I read, I forget who the book was by, but it was a great physicist who said, there is no such thing as empty space. And my mind is very clear. This is matter and this is space. And <laughs> you are as different as can be. That's not the way it is. You know, there is this empty space and blink, there's a, a lepton in there and blink, the lepton has gone. Space and matter are in a continual dance and it's in and out. There is no such thing as empty space. And Einstein, of course, put the kibosh on the old philosophical thing. Where can I stand? Where, you know, the universe is there. You can't stand any place because everything is in motion. The earth is in motion, the sun is in motion, the earth revolves around the sun, but the entire solar system is in motion. And forget the solar system, the entire galaxy in which the solar system exists is in motion, and it's always in flux. Where is this constant? There is no constant. And that's what I just discovered a long, long time ago. The only thing that exists is Atman, Brahman. There are many names for it, but you know, that is it. And that is who you are. That is your innate nature. And something that you should experience, everybody should experience by themselves, not because you say it, I say it, and others say it. Correct you at the nomenclature there, Ashish. You cannot experience it because experience sets up a duality. There is me and there is something else, and I have to experience it. You can never experience it. You can be it, but you cannot experience it. And this is where words start to break down. Hi, friends. We hope you're enjoying the tips discussed in this episode. If you're on the career treadmill, seeking the next promotion, experiencing stress and anxiety, or reached the top of your career and wondering if the sacrifices to get there were worth it, Ashish and I have been there, and we're ready to support you. The Happiness Squad Rewire program is designed to integrate the nine hardwired for happiness practices into your day within five minutes. Form proven habits to experience more success, resilience, satisfaction, and creativity. You won't be alone in your journey. Check out the Rewire link in the show notes. Make happiness your competitive edge to achieve your goals. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, and what I was mentioning, Professor Rao, was this notion of so one practice that we live our lives so interconnected with thoughts and the bodies and the emotions, right? Most common, I am angry. Words come out from that lost element. And where I was going with was a practice that helped me start to actually create a distance and start to even explore and get curious about the I, going back to kind of our original. 
you know, was a meditation practice that I learned from some work I did with Sadhguru. The Isha Kriya, which is the meditation practice of just I am breathing in and recognizing I am not my body, I'm not my mind. And starting to at least start to create that separation where all of a sudden, right, with time, you start to notice that the body's changing and I can sense the feelings rise and change. My thoughts come and go, right? And so the space of who is the I and to me, that experience was very powerful, even of just being able to see the observer observing this thing that we think is just all combined together. Yes. Yes. This is something that when I was, again, first exposed to this content, a colleague of mine, same colleague, her name is Indira Kennedy, a beautiful woman, beautiful soul. She said to me, you know, Anil, I'm, I'm not my mind. I'm not my body. And I, I'll be honest with you both. This was just shy of three years ago. I didn't fully appreciate and understand what that meant. And although I didn't do your course, Professor Rao, I'm currently doing, redoing our rewire program. And in the rewire program, you know, part of it is cultivating our, our awareness. And one of the practices is exactly what Ashish just mentioned. And just being very candid with both of you, Ashish and I had a chat two days ago. I was at a very low point of my day, Professor Rao. And Ashish kind of, he, he took the time to talk me through something that he had done and that he'd worked on and he wanted to kind of instruct me on. And you know, he said, no, listen, it's not that I'm smart. It's just, I've trained myself. I've been training myself to, to understand this and do this for the last 20 years. You know, you've not done that. This is a, a domain of knowledge for you. This is an open space for you. And when I listen to you both talk about the universe, when I, when I hear you talk about the mind, the body, the divine awareness, you know, this is again, an invitation to our listeners. This is an opportunity. This is not something we're taught. We're taught at school, mathematics, science, history, English, language. We're not taught deep scriptures. We're not taught to really explore in us until a later age, like where we are now, where now suddenly, you know, I had the opportunity to read, you know, Covey's Seven Habits in, in college and in undergrad at the age of 18. I didn't appreciate it. I didn't appreciate your course as well at the time. And I was 28. Here I am now at the age of 43. And I'm suddenly thinking, Ashish, can I train myself on this? Can I learn this? And the absolute answer is yes, you can. You just have to open yourself to the possibility of that. And that's why I say to our listeners, you know, for those of you who are finding moments where you don't know what to do, you're facing stress, you're facing anxiety, you think the universe is playing against you, you think your mind is like playing games against you, your body's not operating the way you want it to, just take that amazing pause and just be open to the possibility of what you can learn about yourself because it's not something you've been taught. And it's like, don't be hard on yourself. Just give yourself the opportunity to explore and see what possibilities you might unlock and open up in your own mind. And that's the journey I'm on. And I'm excited to share another question with you, Professor Rao, is I thought to myself, change happens over time, right? And when I read your book, your very first chapter is, hey, guess what, folks? You can engineer change overnight. And so I would love for you to share with us a little bit about that practice, Professor Rao. Like, what is the role of the mental model in our suffering and our liberation? How do we achieve that change that we can engineer overnight? When I said change can happen overnight, I was actually quoting another great Indian sage person called Ramakrishna. And Ramakrishna had a wonderful parable. You have this cave that's been covered up by rocks. It's a cave in a mountain that's been covered up by rocks for centuries. And then when you remove the rocks and expose it to sunlight or take a light in, does the darkness vanish bit by bit or is it gone? It's been covered. It's been dark. For <laughs> so the answer, of course, is the darkness goes away instantly. And there have been experiences that every single one of your listeners had where there's been an instant change. Say, for example, a very close member of the family, your relative, perhaps a parent dies, and you're taking that parent to the graveyard or the cremation ground, whatever, and at that time, you have a deep realization, what am I doing? I'm wasting my life. I'm upset about trivialities. And this doesn't really matter. And it comes home to you in a very, very powerful, visceral way. Right? So you know immediately, hey, you realize that instantly because of this thing that happened to you. And then what happens is a week later or a month later, you're back to where you were before. The change had happened, you felt it, and it happened instantaneously, but then you let it go. 
Creativity and personal mastery is a set of tools that I have devised which enable you to keep that down, keep that with you. And one very important component of that is something that I call deep reflection. And in deep reflection, you take the change that happened, examine it, and you keep your mind focused on it. And there are several such practices. You know, in India, for example, if someone is very scared for death, the guru might tell him, go to a crematorium and meditate on that. You see, you know, countless people have come here and they have been burned. Their children have been burned. Their children's children have been burned. And here I am and I am in this cage of flesh and this flesh too is going to go. And you don't just think about it morbidly, you think about it analytically. And as you do that, you know, your fear of death drops away. You say, yeah, the body, the body goes, but am I the body? And that is the process that Ramana Maharshi went through. It happened to him very, very, very quickly. And at the age of 17, he was a completely enlightened human being who did not identify with his body at all. The locus of awareness had shifted. And the great good fortune that we had is when he went to Thiruvannamalai, he didn't care about the body. You know, I'm not the body, so what does it matter? And he paid no attention to it. And he very well could have shed his body. But fortunately for all of us, there was a devout lady who looked at him and felt motherly instincts, and she combed his hair, and she fed him some gruel every day, as a result of which he survived, which is our great fortune. So the point is exactly that. By a process of deep reflection, all of this can become not an idle thought you had, but a permanent step in your awakening. You have to take those concrete steps, though. On that, Professor Rao, a reflection I want to share with our listeners that I learned from Teach Nathan, who passed away a year and a half ago. Another person who influenced me greatly. Deeply. I've, I've, I've spent so much time reading, listening to his, uh, his teachings. And he said this for the scientists out there and the financial CFOs and the CEOs. He says, reflect on this. Is there anything around you that you think ceases to exist? Think about paper. You can burn it. It transforms into smoke and ashes. Think about glass. You might break it. It breaks into pieces. Think about physical things. They decompose into something else. Think about fruits. They fall down. They decompose, go back into soil as nutrients go back. Think about anything in your world that you can completely destroy, eliminate its existence, and you will find that there isn't any. You can transform science, constant. You can transform mass into energy and energy into mass, quantum physics. Every wisdom tradition, every science is pointing to the same in terms of the nature of things out there then why is the thing in here that you're so afraid of stopping to exist after you die? Exactly correct. Yes. Why is that? Reflect on that and just think about what that means. And hence, if we are free from that, what becomes possible? Bingo, Ashish. Bingo. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but that is the exact same methodology that Ramana Maharshi used. Every visitor will come up and say, Bhagwan, you know, I'm scared of death or I want this. And it would say, who is this person who is scared of death? Examine that. Who is the person who wants this? Whatever this is, wealth, fame, riches, wife, who is the person who desires it? Beautiful. I need to read more of his works. I have not, I have to admit read much, but I would love to get some of the best texts and where to actually start to read. I'll give you a couple right now. Please. I was first introduced to Ramana by a book called A Search in Secret India by Paul Brunton. That is a classic and it introduced thousands of people to Ramana Maharshi. It was my first introduction. And from that, I started deeper. And now, of course, I have a more nuanced and complete understanding of Ramana Maharshi. And every time I go to India, I make it a point to go to Thiruvannamalai, where the Ramanashram is, and where he spent his time. But a certain secret India is a very good place to go. And Ashish, if I may, and you too, Anil, I am starting creativity and personal mastery again. 
So if you're interested in exploration, I would strongly urge both of you to take the course that it is offered. Would absolutely love that. Welcome that for sure. Keeping an eye, thank you for that. I can't wait to read it. I can't wait to wait to explore the course. And let's have a conversation after you've read it. Yes. We'd love that. I want to talk about just keeping an eye on time, one other practice on the process of reflection. And that one in your book, Modern Wisdom, Ancient Roots, that really struck me. It was actually really interesting because I was coaching an executive that afternoon. I didn't know what we were going to talk about, but I had read this chapter before. And that chapter was exactly the topic that he wanted to talk about. And that was the topic of struggles with anger, frustration, and fear. You share a beautiful wisdom in your chapter where you say the real reason you get angry and fearful and you offer a reflection practice. And I would love for you to share that with our listeners. Which is the chapter uh, that you talked about? It's the one where you talk about what is the, you know, you share the story of this father who comes home and there's been two or three things that have happened that, you know, and he bursts out. <laughs> when he steps, do you remember when he when he steps on the little game that his son has left? That's the chapter of talk. And the real reason you have that is because you have anger inside you. And uh, I give the example, if I remember right, of if not in that book, in my other book. Look at rasgulla. Rasgulla is a sweet which uh, many Indians like, particularly popular in Bengal. And it's about the size and uh, color of a ping pong ball. But it's very sweet and full of syrup. And you do anything you want to a rasgulla. You drop it on the floor, you stamp on it, you put a suitcase on it. No matter what you do, what comes out is sweet syrup. And why is that? Because sweet syrup is what's in it. What comes out of us when we voice adversity, anger, rage, fear, why does that come out? Because that's what's in us. And what you really need to do in life is have a systematic process of transmuting all of that. And many of those are given in the exercises I have in creativity and personal mastery, which bring about change without your knowing it. Observe and reflect on your own anger. Reflect on your own fears and the source of it versus blame. Let me make it look even better with an example, which is in one of my other books. Let's assume you have a baby, an infant, 10 months old, and he's in his crib, happily chugging away at the bottle, and you take the bottle away. And immediately he becomes angry. His face turns red. He starts, you know, moving his arms. There's no doubt that this is one angry baby. And then you give him the bottle back. And in seconds, he's back to being a contented infant chugging away. The baby has experienced anger in all its intensity, and then he's let it go. Our problem is that we do not let it go. We hang on to it. Every interaction you have with anyone, all the memories of your past interactions, and oh, he insulted me and he did that, you know, all that baggage is with you, and it colors the interaction now. Let it all go. And when you let it all go, each meeting is fresh. You know, there's a wonderful verse from Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar told Brutus, et tu brut, it really hurt him. So he regretted his part in the assassination, but it's over and done with. But he then dissociated himself from the other conspirators. And when Octavian gathered up the legion to come after them, and they were defeated at the Battle of Philippi, Cassius wanted something from Julius, uh, from Brutus, and he declined. And when Cassius was leaving, he said, And whether we shall meet again, I know not. Therefore, our everlasting farewell take. Forever and forever farewell, Cassius. If we should meet again, why we shall smile? If not, why then this parting was well made? Think about it. You know, every time you have a party, anyone, your wife, your son, whom you see off at school, is there really any guarantee that you'll ever see that person again? And if you deeply reflect on it, you will see that it transforms your life. All of the anger you have, the irritations, the expectations, they all drop away. And whether we shall meet again, I know not. That's a very powerful exercise. Retain that thought in your head. 
And if you do, you will transform it. It's such an intense exercise that most people will say, I can't be there all the time. That's fine. You can't be there all the time, but you can be there some of the time. And even if you're there some of the time, it will transform your life. Do you know, Professor Rao, I just, this is something that's very near and dear to me. I grew up with a, a father who had a very short temper. He was very sweet, very kind in his own way. And I, I inherited that, that temper. And when I realized, and I realize it now, my sister's the one who actually taught me how to throttle my anger, my temperament, if you will. And I say that to you now because I would like to say I'm a very kind and giving soul. And there are moments where that anger, I sometimes feel like it counterbalances that kindness that I give. So it's almost um, something that kind of working through my emotions. I mean, Ashish, you know, this is, uh, you know, practice five, right? Mastering our emotions. I do find myself when I'm in that moment, I do pause. Again, I go back to it and I do wait for my brain to come back online, that cognitive functioning. And the reason why I say that is I love one of my favorite expressions my sister taught me is when the emotion passes, the wisdom remains. And you almost want that rational side to kick in. But I do love what you're saying because there's an absolute limbic system side to it. There's just, there's that emotional side. To it. You don't, why give out anger when you know that a few minutes later, you're going to regret it. And it's something very powerful how it really resonates with me, what you just said. And I, I uh, earlier last week, I was suffering from anxiety and anger and took one of the practices that we teach in Rewire. And I, I started to, to practice the breathing. I started practicing letting the cognitive brain come online, kind of just understanding it, reflecting, as you said. And I do, I have to say to all our listeners out there, if you didn't catch it earlier, I absolutely love what you said. By reflecting, you are taking a permanent step in your awakening. And that's exactly what we're here to do is to slowly but surely, if not quickly, wake up. So yeah, I, I just, I want to say thank you for sharing that because that's something that is near and dear to me. And Ashish, you've been almost in a way a guru and a coach to me in, in terms of really understanding and reflecting on that anger and how we, I said to Ashish, we had a conversation with uh, Shauna Shapiro earlier, Professor Rao. And I, I share this again because we have a tendency, a very comfortable level to yell out loud and scream vulgarities out loud, Right. But if you ask anyone how comfortable are you to, to say today's going to be a great day or I love you or you are amazing or I am amazing, we cringe. And I just, it's just that beauty of like, how can we start to nurture that sweetness inside us? So yes, when you squeeze us like that, rascula, you know, it oozes out with that love and, and it's comfortable. It's not awkward. And that's what this world needs. And that's what Ashish, we're trying to show everyone with Rewire. So, hey, you both touched the core. So I had to share that um, before we shift to the next and final set of questions. Wonderful. So Professor Rao, we just want to end on a few rapid fire questions, if you will, my friend. Okay. Beautiful. So the first question I'd love to ask you is, what is your favorite song to play when you want to turn your frown upside down? I wouldn't call it a song. It is a, it, well, it's poetry. It's the Nirvana Shatakam by Adi Shankara. And it really brings home to you that whatever is bothering you is trivial. The next question I have for you is, your favorite activity that brings you joy each time you do it? playing chess. We need to have a chess contest. My 13-year-old is really into chess right now. <laughs> Are you into chess? <laughs> yes, yes. By its very nature, yes. So what happened? To give you some background, when I was young, I was a good chess player. I represented my colleagues in Stephen's College in chess, and I played for Delhi University. Standards were much, much lower in those days. So I thought I'm going to become a great chess player. So I went to the Burma Shell Open. I got knocked in the second round. I went to the Indian Express Open. I got knocked out in the third round. And that's when I realized I was a pretty good club player, but I didn't have <laughs> an international master or grandmaster or anything. But I always loved chess. I introduced my son to chess, and then I took him to Zurich, where we had a very unusual competition. The competition was only open to world chess champions. So if you were a chess champion, you could compete in that, not otherwise. So everybody was there. Spassky, Karpov, uh, Kasparov, Vishyanan, Ponomaryev, you, you name it. And we had a lot of fun. My son, whom I taught chess, is moved and he's considerably stronger than I am, beats me all the time. He played a Simul when he was at Oxford and he defeated a British grandmaster in there. So that's the level at which he was playing. I can't beat him, but we have very, very enjoyable games. I always love playing chess. 
that's one of the things I have to say. It's not the, did you win or lose? It's, it's enjoying the process. It's just enjoying playing the game and having that time with each other. I think that's just, that's beautiful. It's incredibly powerful. The final question, and it's not to say it's the Ruskula, but your favorite dish that when you have that first bite, it brings you joy. <laughs> I have several favorite dishes, but let me pick one. When properly done, masal dosa is oh. my favorite. <laughs> yes, yes. Love it. Love it. Professor Rao, thank you. I just, I want to say, I may not have been able to be in your presence 17 years ago in the course, but to be here with you and Ashish together now is incredibly powerful and it's changing me in transforming ways I can't express in words. I do look forward to hearing more about the course when it is offered again in this part of the world. And I just want to say thank you again for being you and for sharing your knowledge with Ashish and I, and for being on a journey to transform lives, both young, middle, and those of our I'm going to say old. It's been a <laughs> pleasure. I look forward to seeing you, the finished version of that. And I would like both of you to please send me your email address and your phone numbers. And after you've read A Search and Secret India, let's reconvene again. I would love that. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Rao. And it has been such a joy. It has been such a joy to converse with you and to spend time together. You know, when I was early in my journey about six years ago, exploring the space, discovering you, finding you, I was living the first mountain life, right? I was a partner at McKinsey. It was all out there trying to do this work. You were one of the sources of inspiration for me because here you were doing work. And I was like, you know what? This is, you know, when I had my own realization around why I wanted to dedicate my life, which is the mission, which is behind Happiness Squad, is to help a billion people integrate the art and science of happiness into their life. You were one of those that I took inspiration from. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. I got into a lot of trouble because I was interviewed by a major British newspaper. I think it was the Guardian, Guardian Daily Telegraph, I forget which. And I said, our schools of business are not education institutions. They're indoctrination institutions. That's correct. And I fully believe that, but I got into a lot of trouble for seeing <laughs> public. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for all the amazing work you're doing and continue to do. So as I said, please, both of you, get a certain secret in here, read it. And after you've read it, I would like to reconvene and let's talk, okay? Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Sarma, Professor Rao. We hope you enjoyed this episode on the Happiness Squad podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on your chosen platform that you listen to us on. If you enjoyed the tips discussed, looking to combat stress, burnout, or seeking deeper fulfillment or navigating life transitions, then our Rewire program is designed for you. Rewire is your key to unlock your full potential to experience more success, resilience, satisfaction, and creativity. Make happiness your competitive edge. Check out the show notes and learn more about how you can benefit by rewiring away from fear. In between episodes, follow along on Instagram at myhappinesssquad for tons of tips, insights, and short videos designed just for you. Until next time. <laughs>